Greetings and salutations. This is the Accelerated Culture Podcast, the rise of alternative music in the 80s and beyond. In this podcast, we aim to walk through an often ignored bit of music history. My co-host Trey and I will explore how new waves stormed the airwaves in the early 80s and gave way to the rise of alternative music. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Accelerated Culture Podcast. I'm Lori. And hi, I'm Trey. We are finishing up our musical review of 1987, Trey. This is another another landmark album of the 80s. I would put it in the top 10 best of the 80s. And you're speaking, of course, of The Joshua Tree by YouTube. Who knew this was going to blow up the way it did? Well, we're going to talk about that. I mean, this album went nuclear. I mean, the, the day it came out, it just exploded. You know, one of my biggest memories of this, I don't know if you'll remember, but MTV played the uh, the day the uh, With or Without You video premiered. They play it, played it every hour for 24 hours on the hour. Do you remember that? I do, and I think I got really sick of it then. And they were hyping it for, you know, a month leading up to it. And it, it we'll talk about that when we get there. But it, it, I, I just, an unforgettable fire, the previous LP to this was a fantastic album. It certainly got them on the map in this country, but I just was not expecting this barrage of U2 mania that hit the U.S. at spring and summer of 87. They were everywhere rightly so it's a fantastic album i mean you, you can't can't touch it actually we should probably say who you two are but who doesn't know who you two are well there are some <laughs> people that don't so we've got we've got bono on vocals the edge on guitar adam clayton on bass and who's the drummer that was something mullen oh but who doesn't oh, know God. who you two are but who doesn't know who you two is it are? Rodney? Is something Mullen? Larry Mullen Jr. Oh, okay. All right. How could I forget that? What a dummy. Leave that in there so I look stupid. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, you mentioned The Unforgettable Fire, which was their previous album. They were coming off of the success of that album. And much like Duran Duran with Rio in 1982... They'd been touring in the United States, and they were inspired by the open spaces of the United States. Yep. So the Edge had said that music can actually really evoke a landscape and a place and really bring you there. As a matter of fact, Trey, one of the original working titles of this album was The Two Americas, referring to where the desert in the American Southwest meets civilization. You know, something my girlfriend at the time said after her, and she had been to California at the time, but she said, this is this album just sounds like what California looks like. And I'm sure that you two would be thrilled to hear that because I think that's what they were going for. I had no, I mean, I had no idea. I, you know, clueless about California at that point. I did all I thought of was Los Angeles. 
I have to say here, Lori, guess you'll never guess what this album features heavily. Synthesizers? A Yamaha DX7. Again. <laughs> right, you know, the co-producer Sabin was known as a wizard of the DX7, so... Yeah, Brian Eno is absolutely a genius. You know, it, it's easy to forget now in 2023, but looking back on March 9th, 1987, which is when this album came out, there was nothing else musically that sounded quite like this album. They were really musical pioneers here. I mean, you know, you two, one of those bands, every album they've done has been radically different from the other, and They've gotten a little annoying to me, but they're still on top of their game. I mean, they know what they're doing. Much like David Bowie, they seem to keep reinventing their sound. Mm -hmm. So Adam Clayton had said at the time they recorded this, quote, we felt very disconnected with what was happening musically. I mean, it was the time of synthesizer pop. And The Edge further said, quote, we really didn't feel like we were a part of what was going on in the music business at that time. So they were really kind of doing their own thing musically. And uh, as a matter of fact, this wasn't even recorded in a traditional recording studio. Much of the album was created and mixed at the Edge's newly bought home called Mel Beach, which you two used as a recording studio. Mm -hmm. And I think that that kind of contributes to some of the more, I guess, open sound of this album, you know, because of that recording environment. Possibly. Daniel Lenoy and Brian Eno are genius musicians and producers, too, so. Yes, absolutely. Now, I think he pronounces his name Lenoir. At least I saw a documentary where he pronounced it that way. Well, I stand corrected on that. I wasn't sure that? how to, I almost didn't get it out, if you notice. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's okay. That's all right. One more thing I want to say before we go diving into this, and no offense to Nirvana fans listening, but when one of these Nirvana idiots goes, Nirvana for an alternative music on the map. I'm always like, did you ever hear of uh, Joshua Tree by U2 came out in 87 and pretty much did that? And that's funny because I've never heard anybody oh, say Nirvana sure. put alternative music on the map. I've heard them I, say it put grunge on the map. I've heard a million twits say that. Oh, okay, all right. Like, no, they didn't. No, they didn't. Uh, and Depeche right. Mode too, you screwball. Sorry for my rant. Now, that wasn't directed at you. It was, you know. You're so funny. Well, okay, so you mentioned Brian Eno. Mm -hmm. And the album, as you said, was produced by Daniel Lenoir with Brian Eno. Brian Eno has called the album self-consciously spiritual to the point of being uncool. And there are a lot of spiritual and religious themes, not just on this album, but on most of U2's albums. Everything they've ever done, yeah. And, you know, I would argue, Trey, that you two could be classified as a Christian band. I mean, when we talk about Christian music in the 80s, I think the bands that come to mind are Striper, Amy Grant. But I think you two could fairly be categorized with these others. I think they're an alternative rock band. He just happens to have four Christian members and don't hide it. I, think, I feel like that would be a better way to put that, but I would... You know, because they weren't, you know, they weren't hyping it. They were about, we're Christian band. And when I remember that was an often held debate back then. Okay. Okay. I think that's a, that's a fair way to classify it. I can get behind that. Uh -huh. All right. 
So this is their fifth studio album, and as we mentioned, released on March 9th, 1987 on Island Records. We're going to do a track by track deep dive, and uh, do you want to take the first song, Trey? Yes, I'll take the first song. Uh, first, we have Where the Streets Have No Name. fucking album opener this one is oh my gosh yeah I mean, song geez. Is, yeah 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 um it just even from the very beginning the way the intro kind of builds you have these really jangly guitars you know it's really uh an interesting song there's a couple time shifts in it it shifts from like six eighth time to four four time and there's also a lot of chord changes. It's like you, you keep listening. Every time I listen, I hear something new with this song. You know, I saw this tour and I remember when they came out and Edge walked out first and you could see him hit the DX7 and start the little sequence and all. Then he kind of just walked there to the edge of the stage and stood there and he just kept doing that riff real slow. I was like, that guy's a badass. Look at this. Yeah. All right, well, you know, Trey, I know you like to talk about the synths, and I like to talk about the story behind the songs. This song was written by Bono in response to the idea that, at least where he grew up in Ireland, it was possible to identify a person's religion and income based on what street they lived on. I guess something similar to that, at least here in Chicago, we don't really go by streets so much as neighborhoods. And, you know, if somebody says, oh, I live in Lakeview, then you have an idea, oh, here's somebody that's, you know, wealthy, upper class, white, versus if somebody says, oh, I live in Englewood. And it was a similar situation, I think, in Belfast. So he was envisioning this idea of where the streets have no name, where everybody's equal. There aren't these divisions between classes. Legend has it that when he and his wife, Allie, were traveling in Ethiopia on a humanitarian visit, Bono wrote the lyrics on an air sickness bag in an airplane. You know, I've read that before. Yeah. So, yeah, Bono has envisioned this as like a, a, a place where everyone comes together, I think he said, where the streets have no name. Brian Eno estimated that about half of the album sessions for the Joshua Tree were spent trying to record a version of this song that worked. They tried it so many times and they kept scrapping it. Reportedly, there was a point where Brian Eno had his finger on the erase button and was ready to erase the tape. And one of the engineers stopped him. That's damn interesting. 
Yeah, well, eventually, I guess, they replaced one instrument at a time. So they started with this one single take and, you know, split into multiple tracks. And it's like, okay, we'll replace this guitar track. We'll replace this synth track. Yeah. And what they ended up with was completely different from the original. Hmm, I wonder if the original one's out there somewhere. Or, or if Brian Eno erased it. <laughs> okay. You know, we, we'd be remiss not to mention the video for this. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, let's talk about that. So you two basically showed up on the rooftop of some building in L.A. Yes, it was. It was a liquor store at the corner of 7th Street and South Main Street. You got better info than I do. Mine's not given that address or anything. But yeah. Okay. That's a radio DJ's to announce it. Got thousands of people to show up. And they knew the cops were going to shut it down. That was our point, I think. And uh, that was, I remember when that video premiered, I just thought that was the greatest thing ever. I'm like, I, I didn't know about the Beatles thing before this. Now I know they were clearly mimicking that, but I decided, I was like, that is so cool. You know? Yeah, they were very clearly paying homage to the Beatles Let It Be rooftop concert from January 30th, 1969. Yeah. This song has been covered a bunch of times. Notably, the Pet Shop Boys covered it. That was terrible. Yeah, I don't care. I love the Pet Shop Boys. I don't care for their cover of this song. I think it loses something. I remember the first time I've heard that. I was like, this is, it sounds like something from a kid's movie. You know how they'll, for children, they'll redo a popular adult song and have, you know, some hokey like name. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like something <laughs> like that. Well, this was the third single off of the album, Trey. It was released on August 31st, 1987, so we're coming up on an anniversary very soon. Lori, it was August 7th, 1987. You sure? Oh, you probably, you know what, we're probably back in our old one. You got the UK one, and I got the American one, or vice versa. That's what that is. Remember, that's for Mockstash a few times. Yes, yes it has. (laughs) All right, and then the song went to number 13 on the Billboard Hot 100. It also topped the charts in numerous other countries, Australia, Canada, the UK. Ireland, it went to number one, and New Zealand, it went to number one. Great song. It was just, like I said, what a, what an opening track. They, it was genius to make this the first song. I, I'm sure that was probably the point of it being written somewhat the way it was. The music part. Well, as we've talked about before, at the time, the common practice was to put your strongest songs on the first maybe two or three tracks of the album because record A&R people usually would only listen to the first few tracks. Uh Okay, Trey. Track two on the album, which was also the second single off the album, is I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For.
This was the track I got sick of. I did too, and it's really a shame because in retrospect, it is such a good song. I think I was just so tired of it in 87 because like you said, MTV was playing it like every hour radio you couldn't turn Fucking on the radio overboard, but it was like come yeah. on man i got the rabbit skip this on the albums pick up the needle yeah now i listen to it and i think oh my gosh this is an amazing song and actually los angeles times critic robert hilburn called it u2's let it be I can see where people would think that i don't know if i'd go that far. you know what's what they compare the everybody to the beatles thing well, the Beatles are the Stones, I mean, and Elvis, right? Those are the measuring sticks by which we, I what don't know. What about the cure? Hmm. You know, I'd be silly, but oddly enough, U2 was kind of because a lot of those now themselves. Yeah, the people are comparing it to U2, yeah. yeah. So this song, Trey, very, very heavily inspired by gospel music. Oh, no and doubt. as a matter of fact, Huh? I said no doubt. In yeah. fact, it is a gospel song, I would say. Did you never manage to see Rattle and Hum? Couldn't sit through it. Sorry. I didn't have well, the that, attention There's a gospel version, which I, I think might have got released as a single in some, some countries with a choir and all that really. Yeah. You don't like that version? I said that that would be up your alley. I don't know why I don't care for it. Again, it just might be because the song was so overplayed. I think maybe if I was hearing it for the first time, maybe I would like it. I mean, I, I don't want to be down on it. But, yeah, I mean, even the lyrics, you can hear the gospel inspiration in the lyrics. You broke the bonds and you loosed the chains, carried the cross of my shame. I mean, that is a gospel song. Absolutely. I mean, this arguably probably the most mainstream biblical-based album in history. I think you're right. I, I can't think of another one. There might be something I'm, I'm missing or just not aware of. But I think you're right. They were clearly going for that. From what I understand, Trey, this song started out with the drum part of another song that they were calling The Weather Girls. And then The Edge came up with a new acoustic guitar part. And they started kind of building it up layers upon layers upon layers. And there's that really choppy kind of rhythm guitar going on there. And then a more melodic one on top of it. We were talking earlier about pedal effects, you and I. And you told me what the name of the pedal effect was for the electric guitar on this. And I can't think what it is. Well, the Edge was notorious for his use of delay pedals. Delay pedal, okay. And he more more than likely or not, I had one that had a two and a half second looper on it. So he was doing the chuggy part with that and then looping it and then playing the acoustic-y part, like live. And I was watching an interview where I think it was Brian Eno was talking about Autopan. And all of those effects together, if you listen to the guitar part, it actually kind of reminds me of the beginning of How Soon Is Now by the Smiths. That's a phaser pedal. Okay, all right. Same guitar well, technique, but he's... He, Johnny Marr was big on phaser pedals. I don't, wouldn't even know how to where to begin to explain that to you. Okay, well, I don't know that you need to. <laughs> Auto pans, uh, uh, 
weird stereo recording technique. Yes. Yes. Panning is referring to panning from the left speaker to the right speaker and back again. Right. right. Oh, I thought you were telling me to be quiet. I was like, what? <laughs> no, no, no. No, that was, that like, was what, me gesturing. Going that's me gesturing side to side, left to right. That's the pan. Yeah. You know, I, I should note right here that a lot of the Edge's guitars were warped with the DX7 on this album. Brian, you know, got in there. I don't know how they did that. I'm sure a lot of people have tried to figure that out. But they, they would do something with that DX7 and change the sounds of his guitar. If you notice, look at live footage from this tour. You'll notice his DX7 is four feet from him on his right. And he was constantly reaching over and, you know, hitting something. Who knows what they did? Fire a sample. Who knows? Okay. Anything else you want to say about... Uh... That about covers. I mean, you know, the video was cool as hell. Shot in Vegas. Adam Clayton walking around with a beard, a brown paper bag. I thought that was great when I was 17. It's, it's a good song. I just got so tired of it that summer. Yeah, I, I think I, the whole country did after about a month of it. it. Was like, come on, guys. To you two's credit, they didn't really follow any kind of trend, and they really, what they were doing on this album, doesn't sound like anything else that anybody was doing. I mean, now we listen to it and it sounds, you know, we we, we can see parallels with other artists that have come after, but so much of this was was so new. You know, up next, they have the lead off single from the album With or Without You. Through the storm, we reached the shore. You gave it all, but I want more. And I'm waiting for you. With or without you. This song just add water and it was an instant hit. <laughs> That's funny. It, I mean, it was literally one of those songs that was instantaneously everywhere. Like MTV did the video thing and the next day it was all freaking over radio. So, Trey, you and I have disagreed in the past about what this song is about. You have a theory about what this is about and then I have a theory about what this is about. Indeed. <laughs> well, I think at the end of the day, we're both kind of right. Bono says it's it's got the biblical connotations for sure, but it's also about him being on tour and looking at other women. Well, that's not what you told me. What you told me was it was about a stalker. Well, yeah, I guess I was wrong with that assumption, but some people do have the view that if you sleep with a groupie, you are using her, and it might be, you know, somewhat against her will or her desires or ever coming what she would want to do. I don't remember that part of the conversation before at all. Well, I just threw that. I'm trying, I can't remember what all I said. You, I had you, to, you, just, you just said it, it sounded like it was a song from the perspective of a stalker. You know, a lot of people think that. Yeah? 
I remember when uh, it was used in that final episode of Friends, a lot of people took issue with it because so many people thought it was about a stalker. Huh. See how it could be interpreted that way or about, you know, a lover that you feel passionately about. But I really do think that this is, I think it's about one of the apostles. I mean, there's the part about, see the thorn twist in your side. And so, you know, as you know, from reading the New Testament, there's the uh, the wound in the side of Christ that doubting Thomas had to actually put his hand in the wound and feel it before he would believe that Jesus had appeared to them after he had died. And then there's that line, through the storm we reach the shore, you give it all but I want more. There's a story in the Gospel of Mark about how uh, the apostles and Jesus are all in a fishing boat and Jesus is sound asleep. Jesus takes naps at the most inopportune times. That damn and... Jesus. What? Yeah, I said that damn Jesus. <laughs> so there's a, a storm, like a, a really severe storm, and the apostles are all freaking out. They're thinking they're going to die. And so they wake Jesus up and they say, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? And Jesus just says, peace, be still. And then the wind ceases and there's dead calm. I'm interpreting this. This is just my humble opinion. No, you're definitely right. Now that you point all this stuff out, you are, you are spot on. Um, well, thank you. I never been much about the Bible, so. And again, this is my Catholic school upbringing. Right, I can. What I'm hearing with or without you, it's it's kind of like a love-hate relationship. Mm -hmm. Especially that part, and you give yourself away, where whoever is singing this, and again, if it's one of the apostles or whatever, feels such strong love for the person. We're postulating that it's Jesus. But then there's also this resentment. Why are you giving yourself away? Why are you doing all these things for other people? Why are you giving yourself to save all of these other people when I am one of your best friends, when I'm the one that loves you? So there's definitely like kind of this conflict at the center of it. Now, that certainly could be used as a metaphor for a love relationship, like with intimate partners it wouldn't be the first time i think you're right that it's it's about jesus but by the way it was that about autobiac yes. what is up with us and one of those simple words all right laurie so I, I did a lot of reading about this song and i have actually found bono given multiple stories be behind what this song's about one of them says it's about wanderlust during touring you know chicks on the road type of thing and okay. i saw more than a few where he said it's about himself okay so you know i don't know what to say there and i the, the, the biblical references you just pointed out are are clearly there so what do you go with bono thinks in Thinks of himself as Jesus. He, he cheated on his wife, maybe on tour, and guilt got guilt stricken. What? What? What do you? You know? No. Okay. So that's funny. You know, this is something I told one of my college friends once. 
Uh, I told him I think that Bono might be the second coming of Christ. <laughs> and and so you've just maybe given me a little bit of support for that. I'll, I'll take that as you will. I mean, I've known people that literally idolize them over the years. All right. So now we're <laughs> going from religion to politics with the next track, Bullet the Blue Sky. Let's listen. this one trey i don't know what they were rebelling against when i was in made me think of like ci agents chasing drug dealers who knew but i i I was with them i was down man i think that you are not too far off so this is one that bono has actually explained he had traveled to nicaragua and el salvador and he saw firsthand the results of United States foreign policy and military intervention in Central America and how it was affecting the the people, the, the lower classes. They had very real direct impacts. Everything that was going on that we were seeing in the news was like the uh, Nicaraguan Contra rebels and everything else that we were, our country was backing. It was really hurting the people of these countries and Bono was so mad that he told the edge he wanted to quote put El Salvador through an amplifier well that's exactly what they did I think so I think they really did a good job of accomplishing that kind of a feeling so this started off as like just a jam session as so many rock songs do And apparently Adam Clayton was playing in a different key from the edge. And this was really getting under the edge's skin. Adam and the drummer, Larry Mullen, they were not playing the way he thought they should be playing. And he thought to himself, what the fuck are they doing? And he actually thought about just saying, you know what, stop. But he didn't. And then when he went back and he listened to the tape in the control room, he said that, the demo was, quote, absolutely brilliant. Now, the bass on this in particular, and to a lesser extent, the drums, I think they do have a little bit of a Led Zeppelin kind of feel to it. I can say now, that booming. My friends who are listening to this know I absolutely hate Led Zeppelin. So I'm not saying that in a way to be insulting. It's just, you know, I, I see the influence there. I really like this one for the bass. And this was a sound that I think some of the grunge bands of the early 90s started to pick up on. What was the recording technique? That that boomy, mm-hmm. real low end. I call it recorded at a trash can sound. Okay. 
I mean that in a good way. Now, Trey, you told me something very interesting about Adam Clayton that I didn't know. I, I, you know, reading about you two in general over the past week, getting ready for this, and I found an interview with uh, Adam Clayton. He said he didn't properly know how to play bass in the mid-90s, and he finally took some lessons. And, you know, he said before that, I was just sort of, sort of winging it, really. And that's fascinating to me. That I mean, you know, you don't have to be a virtuoso to be at a rock band. Oh, no, absolutely not. Mm-hmm. I mean, the whole punk movement was founded on that idea, right? Right, exactly. I, you two were certainly influenced by that. The thing that I find so fascinating about that is he's been the basis of a band that's had two number one hits, With or Without You, went to number one and was certified double platinum. Mm-hmm. And I still haven't found what I'm looking for, went to number one with certified platinum. And then, after all that, then you decide to learn how to play your instrument? Yeah, maybe I should learn how to play this thing. By that point, mid-90s, they were on, what, their fifth or sixth arena tour, you know. Right? Maybe I ought to learn how to play. That's hilarious. I thought it was hilarious. I was like, wow, that's brilliant. So, like, for all the kids out there that are like, no, I don't, I'm no good. I don't want to be in a band. Well, hey, look at Adam Clayton. You can do it. You just show up. Yeah. Up next, weird. This one slows the album down a bit. It's uh, running to stand still. So she woke up, woke up from where she was, lying still, said, I gotta do something about where. So, Trey, do you know what this song is about? I had always thought it was about maybe drug abuse or drug addicts. And you are correct. That's the uh, connotation I got from the song. Yes. Actually, Bono has said, I wrote about this couple and I put them in almost sort of a drug-like haze. Apparently, the song is describing heroin addiction. Yeah, that's what I figured he was going for. Now, the title of the song was inspired by something his brother had said. Bono had asked his brother how his business was going, and the brother said, it's like running to stand still. Which is kind of like me, and sometimes people, yeah, I use the expression, hurry up and wait. Yeah, I say that one too. Yeah, same kind of expression. Um, but the, the lyrics where he says, I see seven towers, but I only see one way out. That's a reference to Ballymun Flats, and that was a group of seven public housing high-rise residential towers in the Ballymun neighborhood of Dublin during the 60s. And Bono apparently grew up in a house across the fields from the towers, so he could see the towers from his childhood home. 
So he decided that that would be an appropriate setting for this song. It's a great song. It it is a really good song. It's 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 beautiful and sad. It's very sad. Not that m- most of U2's music is happy. The music itself was improvised, and I think co-producer Daniel Lenoir was actually playing one of the instruments, if I'm not mistaken. And it's got some very heavy folk rock and acoustic blues influences. It's a good song. I always sort of reminded me reminded me of something Neil Young would have done. Exactly. Yeah, folk rock and 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 blues influences. Yeah. Of course, I didn't realize that in '87. It wasn't until I was much older and gotten more musically experienced in my life and caught on to that. But I wonder if that's they were sort of. So word I need there. I wonder if that was meant to sound like something Neil Young would have done. Gotcha. Say it alarmingly, I guess. Gotcha. Okay, well, speaking of Neil Young, that's actually a good segue to the next song, Trey. Because Neil Young, a lot of his songs were very heavily political. Mm-hmm. And so is the next song by you too. That is Red Hill Mining Town. There's no going back Through hands of steel And heart of stone Our labor day Has come and gone I love this one. Yeah? Do you know anything about it? It's something with some coal mines or something in Ireland. I know that much. You're just about correct. It's the National Union of Mine Workers 1984 strike in Great Britain. This is something that U2 has never shied away from. U2 has never shied away from being political. And this time, 1987... Yeah, that was really a time of political turmoil. I know that a lot of people tend to think, oh, yeah, the 80s, the excess, right? Gordon Gecko, greed is good. But I think people tend to forget there was a lot of unrest and a lot of upheaval going on. And I know us as Gen Xers, we kind of have a reputation as being slackers. But the fact of the matter is, these were all causes that we were really passionate about growing up. We were coming off the end of the Cold War, so this was before the Berlin Wall fell. Apartheid in South Africa. There were a lot of things going on that our generation, Trey, you and me, we were getting very heavily involved in. And a lot of our parents really didn't seem to understand what we were upset about, you know? I wasn't so much aware of a lot of this stuff, but you got to remember where I lived versus where you were. And that's true. I was in an urban area and you were... Right. I was clueless. It was in Georgia. They they weren't worried about that down here. They, 
I'm sure people, some people were. I just, I was oblivious to it. Well, I mean, what year was the air traffic controller strike that Reagan fired everybody? Was that 80? I remember that. I, I can't remember. It was 80 or 81? 81. Yeah. 81. Mm-hmm. I grew up in Aurora, Illinois, where a major air traffic control center is located. So a lot of the people that were affected were the families of my friends. You right. Know? See, we didn't have anyone like that here. No, you guys don't do unions down there, huh? There, there are, but our airport was towed on back then. It was, you know, it oh, didn't okay. affect this city at all. People here are like, the fuck is the air traffic controller, you know, that type of thing. I gotcha. So, Trey, this was originally planned to be the album's second single. Is it? But ultimately, they shelved it in favor of I still haven't found what I'm looking for. They made the right decision. This song, while it's a great song, would not have done well here. No, you don't think I mean, so? No, it would have whatever people said. They, they made the right decision. The fact that this was going to be a single explains why there's a music video for it. So it was produced in 19, uh, February 1987 and directed by Neil Jordan. I think the record company probably went, guys, you might want to rethink this one in the U.S., that's what I stuck on people with that You know, I could be wrong, but I'd like to think that that would not have made a difference to Bono. I don't think he would have cared. You're, you're exactly right about that. But this, I mean, it's just people here would have been what the hell is a Red Hill and Lightning Town? Think about it. I see definite parallels between this and Blue Sky Mine. I was about to bring that up myself. I was about to go, of course, a few years later, Midnight Oil. With... And then? do essentially the same thing and have someone of a hit with it. You know, bands like Midnight Oil were also political, but I think they were a little bit more on the fringe. They went nowhere near the top 40. Well, okay, they might have with Beds Are Burning, but they went nowhere near number one. U2 is the first band in recent memory in the mid to late 80s that actually was taking songs with political themes and going to number one. I mean, that's why they're U2. I mean, that, that's what U2 does. I think that's that's what they set out to do, and they did it. Yeah. You know, they were they were going to break through with that, and they, damn it, they didn't do it. They took the whole punk rock thing and, and mainstreamed the fuck out of it and opened the door for a lot of these other bands. There you go. Yeah. One thing that was interesting to me, Trey, is that Dream Theater of all bands Here. covered this song in 1996. Yeah, I, I listened to that the other day, and it's terrible. Not a huge fan of Dream Theater. Yes, I, I've seen them live. I got dragged by a guy I was seeing. Um, well, okay, maybe dragged isn't the right word, because I was willing to go. Hey, I'll go see pretty much anybody live, too. Hey, let's go free, sure. Yeah, yeah I mean... Uh, Live music is, is spectacular, it's, it's, it's spectacular I, I, no matter who's I'm playing, down, right? I'm down. Let's go. But but the funny thing is, uh, this uh, this guy, his name was Randy, he discovered Dream Theater, not by the usual channels, but in the dollar store bin where the, the CD was being sold for a dollar. And he thought, oh, well, that sounds like an interesting band name. And he went and bought it, decided he liked them. They were coming through Chicago, and he decided he wanted to go see them. 
I regard Dream Theater, I regard them as a dollar store reject band. Trey, do you want to take the next song? Yes, up next we have In God's Country, which is one of my favorite tracks on this album. Let's check out a bit of it. This is the most Joshua Tree song on the album to me. And just that's the, what it makes me think of. Yeah, absolutely. The lyrics, dream beneath a desert sky, the rivers run, but soon run dry. Mm-hmm. And then dreamed I saw a desert rose. Yeah, this is a beautiful song. It's consistent with the cinematic feel that the band wanted for this album and the open desert spaces in the American Southwest. They released this single tray, but only in the United States. Or, I'm sorry, only in North America. They did not release it elsewhere. And it was just about a month after uh, the release of Where the Streets Have No Names. And I think they were just hyping the second leg, second U.S. leg in the Jasper Tree Tour, trying to, you know, get them everywhere. Speaking of the Joshua Tree, we haven't really talked about how this album got its name. Um, I mentioned that the name, the two Americas was a, a title that they had been kicking around. Mm -hmm. Another title that they were kicking around was the desert songs. So the band were in California and they were driving around with Anton Corbin, the famous rock and roll photographer talking about ideas for the album cover for the shoot with this kind of desert, arid theme. Corbin told the band about the idea of Joshua trees, which are these beautiful, well, you can see it on the album cover, just beautiful, twisted-looking trees that grow in the desert, and you don't see them anywhere else in the world. They were named after the prophet from the Old Testament, Joshua, which when... Bono heard this, he perked up. He's like, there's our title for the album, The Joshua Tree. So while they were driving around, they happened across a single lone Joshua tree on Route 190 near a town called Darwin, California. And that's really unusual because apparently Joshua trees only grow in groups. And to see one by itself like that really really surprising but it's an iconic album cover and it really evokes a place which is what they were going for for this whole album you might even be able to argue that this is a concept album it's definitely straddling that line for sure 
the theme of the desert and the wide open spaces, you know? Yeah. Anything else about this song? Oh, yeah. Well, I think we covered it there. Yeah, it's really a beautiful song. I really like that one a lot. Yeah, it's such a great song. It's, I just wish it was a bit longer. So the next song, Trey, is called Trip Through Your Wires. Let's listen. I love this one too. This one's great. I can see why you like this one. Of all the songs on the album, I think this is the most you. Why would you say that? Well, because you seem to be attracted to certain themes. This song is about a girl who evokes a tremendous passion in a guy. And that's the kind of music that you seem to gravitate towards. Cool. No? Interesting. Well, I mean, every every album you you're associating it with, you know, oh, this girl that I dated, or this this you know ex girlfriend, or losing my virginity. So when I hear something like this, I'd say, yeah, this sounds like something that Trey would be into. Well, no? what is it about? Well, it, it's well, you know, you the, just said that. Yeah, but I mean, okay, so so the title, "Trip Through Your Wires," right? We talk about a trip wire. Right, and a trip wire is a low placed wire that sets off a trap. So mm -hmm. when Bono's talking about being caught up in all her wires, it's it's a trap. It's a trap. Definitely walked into a few of those. He's been ensnared by <laughs> this passion that that you know the woman has brought out. Yep, happens to all of us. Yeah, so there's more religious imagery in this too. We got angel, angel or devil. I was thirsty and you wet my lips. But I would argue this is probably not a religious song like some of the other ones are. Bada plays a harmonica on this track, Trey. Yeah, I was going to say there's a harmonica on this one. Yeah, that's Bono. Bono actually played that? Yeah, I guess he first started playing when the band was just starting out. And you know what he started uh, when he was first trying to learn the harmonica? He was trying to play the Neil Young song, Heart of Gold. So there we go. We'll kneel you up again. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Yeah. This song was also used in the 1990 movie called State of Grace, starring Sean Penn. Like, I've ever even heard of that one. I've heard of Sean Penn. I have to. <laughs> oh, all right. All right. Anything else about Trip Through Your Wires? I think that about covers it. Okay, so what do we have next? Up next, we have One Tree Hill, which is another one I like. Uh, I, I have no clue what on earth it's about. That Joshua Tree that was alone, is that what it's about? Let's listen, and then I'll tell you what I know. 
All right. Okay, so significantly, Trey, this song was released as a single, but only in Australia and New Zealand. No, I didn't know that. And the reason why, I think, I, I don't know this for a fact, but the track was written in memory of a guy named Greg Carroll, who was a, a member of the Maori tribe in New Zealand. The band met him during the Unforgettable Fire Tour in 1984, and he got to be very close friends with the band especially Bono. He was really close friends with Bono. He started working for the band in 84 and touring with them, but he was killed in a motorcycle accident on July 3rd, 1986 in Dublin. I guess he was taking Bono's bike back to his house on a rainy night and a car pulled out in front of him and he was hit. You know, now that you say that, I've heard this story before, but I, I guess I just didn't remember this song was associating with it. So he had just arrived in Dublin because he was going to help the band with this album, The Joshua Tree. And I think it goes without saying that his death really impacted them. Yeah, I can see. So, wow. Yeah. And then um, it was this, it was Greg Carroll's death and then the band's subsequent attendance at the Maori funeral in New Zealand. Uh, I think it's called a, a tangi, tangi. But anyway, that's what led Bono to write the lyrics to One Tree Hill. It's about his thoughts at the funeral. There's a little reference slipped in here to Victor Yara, who is a Chilean activist. But mostly it's about Greg Carroll. Interesting. And like I said, I, once you started talking about it, I remember reading that story at some point or seeing one of them talking about it. So... But, I mean, it still fits, right? It still fits uh -huh. with the theme of uh, the Joshua tree, the desert. It all keeps coming back to that that concept. Beautiful song. Yeah, it is a great song. And, I mean, now that I know the story behind it, I, I, I think I appreciate it even more. Okay, so next up, Trey, we have a song called Exit. Shall we listen? Yes.
I now, love Trey. Oh no, 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 you know. I, I was going to say you had mentioned that you've heard them play this in concert. Yes, I saw the Joshua Tree tour. It was on December ninth, nineteen eighty-seven, at the Omni in Atlanta. And they actually they did about two, maybe two and a half to three minutes of running to a running to standstill, and all of a sudden it just stopped. And Larry Mullen hit that, did this, and they went into this song. I don't know why, but it, ooh, it was powerful. This sound was great. All the lights went out too, and these strobes came on, and they, everybody started running around the stage. I was like, "What the hell is going on?" They're kind of rocking out out of a blue. It's a, it's a good, oh, really, like you said, a powerful song. It's very dark. Do you know anything about what this song is about? I always figured it was about war. Or, I don't know, some sort of traumatic event. Okay, well, you're you're very close. So the lyrics were inspired by Norman Mailer's book, The Executioner's Song. Really? Yes. And so it's about a serial killer. Yeah, I was... Wow. And the working title of the song was actually The Executioner's Song at one time. Bono has said it was more like making a movie than a record. Now, this came up a couple years later in 1989. Do you remember the murder of actress Rebecca Schaefer. Oh, of course. That was... My sister, Sam. Uh-huh. Robert John Bardo. He was the stalker-turned-murderer. Uh, he actually tried using this song as part of his defense. He said that this song influenced him to kill Rebecca Schaefer. Uh, there was a controversy. The Edge said... Should any artist hold back from putting out something because he's afraid of what somebody else might do as a result of his work? I would hate to see censorship come in, whether from the government or, from my point of view, personal. And this isn't the first time that people have claimed this kind of defense, right? Uh -huh. you remember Mark David Chapman? Oh, yeah. Claimed the catcher in the rye influenced him to shoot John Lennon. And what else? There was... Um, Charles Manson of the Beatles. Yes. Yeah, Helter Skelter, uh -huh. right? Yes. So this is not the first time that people have tried to point the finger at literature or at rock music and blame an individual's actions on the art. And you can't control what somebody's, how somebody's going to interpret your music or book or whatever, movie, art. You know, so it's right. I can understand why yeah, it's thought that that must be a horrible thing to have happen to something you you recorded. You know, well, you know the the album kind of takes a dark turn here towards the end. In opposition to like I said about the past three or four albums we've put done, the last two songs you usually yeah, this one goes off with a bang. I think. And you're speaking, of course, of Mothers of the Disappeared. Yes. Thank you. 
What do you think of that one? Again, I feel like it's got a war theme to it. Mm-hmm. Missing so you know, the unknown soldiers and the not got that right. Again, you're so close. It was inspired by Bono's work with Amnesty International and his travels to South America, specifically the Pinochet regime in Chile. Political dissidents, people who expressed disagreement with the Chilean government, they were quote-unquote disappeared. Sometimes they would be taken up in an airplane or a helicopter and dropped over the mountains, just never seen again. Oh, well. Yeah, and, and I have a very dear friend whose family fled Chile, and a number of his relatives were disappeared by the Pinochet regime. Performance of this song became a form of protest, and at concerts, Bono would actually bring on stage some of the mothers of the disappeared, these people who lost loved ones in Chile. And the mothers are holding photographs of their missing loved ones. And Bono was really trying to put pressure on the Chilean government to, at the very least, let the mothers know where the bodies could be found. You know what I mean? Give them some kind of closure. Well, they And in the liner notes, and Trey, I think you might have mentioned this earlier, U2 lists addresses for several different branches of Amnesty International, and proceeds from this song were donated to Amnesty International. Far out. I, and was quite, I, I knew it was deep. Not quite that. That's, that's something else. Yeah. Okay, so Trey, that brings us to the end of the Joshua Tree. I hadn't listened to this album since 87. Honestly, I really forgot just how good this album was. Fantastic. There is not a bad track on it. You know, when you and I talked about Kick by NXS, which was also in 1987, their plan was to release an album of singles. I don't know that you two had a similar plan here, but arguably this could be considered an album of singles because Every single track on here stands on its own. Uh, as my friend Hayden likes to say, all killer, no filler. Exactly. They were certainly they were certainly trying to give you something for your money. I mean, a lot of albums back then, it'd be three or four good songs, and the rest is just utter garbage. And they were certainly trying to not do that. All right. So this is a separate band, but I wanted to throw this at the end here because I absolutely adore this band, and I hate they've just... No one knows them. And they actually opened the Unforgettable Fire Tours and some of this tour. And the band is Lone Justice. Let's check out a few seconds of their song, Shelter, which is probably my favorite track for them. And I'll talk a little more about them.
Are you familiar with these guys at all? No, I'd never heard of them before. Never heard of them. You are very good at coming up with obscure bands that I've never heard of. Linda Ronstadt heard them and thought they were fantastic. And she called Dave and Geffen and said, you got to sign these guys. Just just check them out. And so he did. And he heard them and he signed them on Linda Ronstadt's urging. And they opened for you too. And how was the reception? Did the crowd warm up to them? They got, I mean, yeah, they got a good reception. They were mildly successful between 85 and 87. And enough to play on Saturday Night Live had them. They played on really? the, yeah, they played on the 1987 MTV New Year's Eve thing. And uh, so they were mildly successful, mildly. What's the name of the band again? Lone Justice. Headed up by Maria McKee, who has a wonderfully fantastic voice. At the end of the uh, Josh Retreat tour, Lone Justice just basically imploded due to record company nonsense. So Maria actually went to uh, Ireland Labano and lived with him and his wife for, I think, more than a year. No, I'm assuming that was just as like friends. That oh, it was completely platonic. She, if you look the interviews up with her, she. Mitch is that right off the bat. Like, look, they were just helping me out because I had no money and my band had imploded it. And they were like, come stay with us in Ireland for a while, get away from it all, you know, just have some fun. They were, they were just looking out for a young girl. She's not that old. I think even now she's only about 56 or 57. She was like 18 and 85. So they were just looking out for, I think they were worried about her getting into drugs or, you know, you know how that happens. Trey, this is the end of 87, my friend. Finally. So between now and the next episode, Trey, I'm going to be going to a couple concerts. I'm going to see Duran Duran on September 1st. And September 2nd, I'm going to go see the Ocean Blue. So I'm probably going to report back and have some some good stories to tell. And well, I didn't, didn't know the Ocean Blue were touring again. I never got big into them, but they, they're talented people. Yeah, they're really good. Well, the other one I got tickets for in November, I just bought tickets for Dexies, and I've never seen them live. Dexies Midnight Runners? They still exist? Yeah, they're doing a tour. Well, that's going to be interesting. Yeah. Talk about a one-hit wonder. But it's a shame because so much of Kevin Rowland's stuff is so good, you know, and it gets overshadowed by the one song. But That's the only song I've ever Yeah. I have an interesting story about them. We'll save it for after you go see them. Awesome. Okay. So, Trey, we are now moving into 1988, and our plan is for you and for me to each pick 10 songs from 1988 that we love. I don't have to think about this one. Oh, no, because I've been asking you for a couple of weeks for your list. Well, it's all in my head <laughs> now. Have you? Well, Sinead threw us off. And by the way, people, if you haven't listened to that Sinead episode, they're going to do a glory Freaking oh, you're sweet. Nails it on that one. It's unbelievable. Thank you. I feel like I put a little bit of my soul into that episode. It, 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 it was so hard. It's going to make us famous. <laughs> Aw. All right. Well, Trey, you and I are going to work on our 1988 list. We'll be back in two weeks. Goodbye for me. Good night, everybody. Thanks for listening. <laughs>